0: Before we begin, we would like to acknowledge that Toronto was founded on the traditional territory of many Indigenous nations, such as the Mississaugas of the Credit River, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Huron Wendat. This place is still home to many First Nations, Inuit, and Metis peoples, and we are grateful for the opportunity to live and work on this land. As we explore stories of medical science, we also ask our listeners to learn of and reflect on the history of science and medicine as tools of oppression. The exploitation of medical science has led to biased perceptions and barriers to healthcare against indigenous peoples that persist to this
1: day. (laughs) Alright, here we go. Today, today, I took a shower at midday. I tried to wash my thoughts away. I scrubbed you off me like a stain. I watched you circle round my drain. I dragged my feet across the floor, watched my past fade into lore. And by the time that time was done, I'd made three laps around the sun. No one tells you how to be when you're young and full of dreams, how to love and how to live, when to fight and forgive. Welcome to episode 108 of Raw Talk Podcast. My name is Rachel.
2: And I'm Brayden. Let's talk about love. All of us are very familiar with the four-letter word, L-O-V-E, and have our own unique relationships and experiences that come to mind when we hear it.
1: Pretty much everyone on earth experiences love in some way. But what we want to know is whether there is an objective definition for this intangible, abstract thing that gives our lives so much meaning and shapes who we become.
2: We spoke to current University of Toronto PhD candidate, Rebecca Horn, to give us a general insight into the psychology of love.
3: So my name is Rebecca Horn and I'm a fifth year PhD candidate uh, at the University of Toronto in the Department of Psychology. And my general area is social psychology, and more specific, I study romantic relationships and well-being. In about the 80s, there was a researcher, Robert Steinberg, who developed, um, I guess, a theory of love based on, you know, work that other relationship scientists had done up until that point that kind of talked about what are the core components or or crucial components that um, make up what love is. Um, And according to that theory, there are four main types of love um, based on different combinations of three core components. Um, The first component is passion. So that's somebody's feelings of longing um, for a partner, like preoccupation, a strong desire for sexual fulfillment with a partner. It's the kind of like head over heels feeling that you get if you might be in love. Um, The second component is intimacy, which is more about warmth, comfort, comfort. Uh, mutual respect. So kind of like a sharing and caring component of love. Uh, And then the third is commitment. So that's the decision and the desire to want to maintain that relationship that you're in. Um, Kind of the idea of, you know, I'm going to stick with this person through thick and thin. Um, So based on different, you know, combinations of passion, intimacy, and commitment um, that results in four different types of love. Um, So one type of love is called fatuous love. So that's when you have high levels of passion and commitment. Um, These tend to be kind of whirlwind courtships, kind of think like a Las Vegas wedding, um, where there's, you know, lots of sex and there's these vows to remain together, but there's not a lot of sharing and caring in that kind of relationship. Uh, A second type of love is called romantic love. So this is when there's high passion and high intimacy. Um, This is kind of like a summer fling, you can imagine. So, you know, a relationship that really burns bright, but then fades more quickly, tends to be more common in adolescence uh, and early adulthood. Um, a third type of love is called companionate love. So that's if there's high intimacy and high commitment. Um, so this is sort of relationships where passion and sex take more of a backseat, either because it's not as important to the couple, um, or it's something that just fades over time. Um, so it focuses more on friendship, disclosure, and dedication to one another. Um, and then Sternberg said that the ideal type of love or something that many of us want to achieve is this combination of passion, commitment, and intimacy, which is called Um, consummate love Um, so it has all of those different components kind of combined together Um, and of course a lot of us might want to achieve this kind of love but it requires a lot of work to actually uh, sustain so that's kind of one general theory that there is of love but it's also important to note that um, we know from research that I think love can take on different meanings to people over time uh, because we know that you know the component of intimacy that's something that tends to spike really early in a relationship and it sort of keeps growing over time um, the amount we care for a partner, the mutual respect we have with a partner, whereas, um, something like passion, that's something that peaks at the really early stages of a relationship and then tends to plateau. Uh, and then on average tends to actually decline over time. Um, so although there are these, you know, different types of love, um, they can kind of take on different meanings for people over time as their relationships, uh, grow and change.
2: It's kind of interesting how love can be viewed based on all its parts. Often, we simplify love to just something that you feel towards another person, but it's not that simple
3: being able to experience some of those greatest highs, almost again, through the experience of reading about or hearing about other people's love stories, I think that can also be, be helpful. Um, but then at the same time, even reading about the heartbreak too, or difficulties that people had in their relationships, so not just about falling in love, but just the difficulties that can kind of come with being in love. Um, I think it helps us in a way where we can commiserate potentially with other people's struggles, um, maybe finding you know, commonalities between other people's experiences and our experiences, um, which could even, and help us learn more about our experiences, or um, help us make sense of them a bit more, help us reappraise them a little bit. Um, so, yeah, I think we we do enjoy these stories about falling in love, or being in love, or even you know falling out of love as well, because we experience some of our greatest highs and our lowest lows in these uh, in romantic relationships.
1: Romantic relationships are different from all of our other loving relationships because they add another layer of complexity, as sexuality and physical attraction are involved. We asked Rebecca about the differences between attraction, sexuality, and sexual orientation and the relationship to love.
3: Yeah, so there's some similarities and some differences between all of those different terms. Um, so starting with attraction. Um, attraction is something that can be romantic or sexual. Um, so romantic attraction is uh, people's feelings of love, infatuation, or emotional desire for another person. Um, Whereas sexual attraction involves more erotic desire and things like lust and and fantasies about another person. So it's possible to have just one of those things for somebody or both of those things if you're attracted to somebody. Um, But that's generally what attraction is all about. Um, Love is kind of like what I just described, different combinations of feeling, passion, intimacy, and commitment. Um, So you can kind of think of romantic attraction as something that's more akin to intimacy. So again, those dimensions of caring, respect, warmth for for a partner, uh, while sexual attraction is more akin to passion. So the longing, preoccupation, and desire-fueled kind of elements. Um, So that's attraction and love. And then um, sexuality, that's something that's a lot more Multi-dimensional, So it kind of depends on what aspect or element of sexuality you're, you're talking about. Um, so for example, sexuality can involve um, sexual arousal. So the actual physiological response that we get to somebody else in our bodies that we can feel if we're attracted to them, like sweaty palms, um, heart racing, those kinds of things. Um, but that's very different from something like sexual identity, which is the way that each person sort of understands themselves and labels their own attraction and their sexual behaviors with others, so how they actually identify as a sexual person, um, which can be similar to or different from actual overt sexual behavior, so the actual interactions that you engage with somebody else. Um, And actually, if you think about these three uh, components, so sexual identity, sexual arousal and sexual behavior. And also think about romantic attraction and sexual attraction. Those five things put together um, kind of inform somebody's sexual orientation uh, because sexual orientation is is very complex and multidimensional as well. So it's involving these emotional, cognitive, um, physiological components, as well as behavior and obviously sexual components, too. Um, so people tend to think of sexual attraction as you know, the core component of somebody's sexual orientation, because it usually then informs the way they identify sexually and the, uh, the sexual behaviors they'll engage in.
2: Love isn't just matters of the heart. It's also biological. Show host Zeynep speaks with Don Masler Biggie, biologist, author, adjunct professor and presenter of the TED talk, How Your Brain Falls in Love, who takes us deeper into the neurobiology behind falling in love.
4: Okay, so the TEDx talk that you're familiar with, probably the how our brain falls in love, explains that process of what's happening when we fall in love, which is different than men or for women. So what we see is we, we see a building up of, of neurotransmitters and then boom, a drop. And this drop is what we call falling in love. Interesting enough, it's actually, you know, the, it's falling. So when that happens in our brain, we see all kinds of different types of activity. We see deactivations of important parts of our brain, such as the prefrontal cortex, the thinking part of our brain. We see deactivation of the ventral medial prefrontal cortex. That's the part of the brain that judges the other person. That's why they say love is blind. We also see chemical responses such as, well, let me ask you, you're you're a scientist, right? So serotonin is the hormone of happiness. When you fall in love, do you think it goes up or down? I mean,
0: I want to say it goes up, but I've seen your Ted talk.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I know oxytocin's in there. <laughs> but yes, so oxytocin's in there, that's that's before when we before we fall in love, but once we fall in love, the hormone of happiness, we think would skyrocket, but it actually drops. And it drops to the level of someone with OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. So that's why you're so obsessed when you're in love, and it's also why breaking up when you fall in love is so painful, because now your serotonin levels down to the level of depression. You're obsessed, and it feels it feels uh, excruciating to be left in that situation without the reciprocating part of that um, the. The deactivation that so you don't feel that pain. We also see uh, weird activation, such as in the parietal lobes, and it's the same reaction you see or similar to when you use cocaine. So you've got that excitement, you're up all night, you're like, you know, you, you just want to be with this other person, it's it's addicting. Um, and that's different from long term love, where we see an, an activation in the back of our brain by the opioid receptors. So long-term love is more of a a pain relieving, mellow uh, kind of love.
1: Now that we have broken down some of the key factors that may be at play in romantic relationships, we wanted to know how the pandemic has impacted people who are trying to find new love. To shed some light on this topic, I had the privilege of interviewing couple and family therapist, Carol Sandy how has the pandemic affected people in your opinion? How has it affected your clients being just socially isolated, you know, grouped up at home for some people or others having to work and then limiting their social interactions?
0: You know, it's funny. I did a, a, bit of, a, a little bit of a show around that and just um, in some ways, what I've heard from a dating expert um, is that it's made people a bit more, less patient. And so what I mean by that is people are not willing to go on all these number of dates. They are coming in ready, like I've wasted some time. This COVID thing had me cooped up. And so this is what I'm looking for. This is what I'm looking for. Do you have that? Are you interested? Is it long-term? Is, and so people are being a, a bit more clear about what it is that they want. Mm. Um, and really have recognized that like I think with all of us with COVID it's taught us just how short life is how challenging life is and that I really know what I want and I don't want to waste my time and so I that's kind of what you know some of the feedback that I've heard from some from folks which really surprised me because I thought oh my gosh you know people must be so like challenged by not being, not being able to date. But a lot of folks um, were dating, you know, going out and doing like distance dating, sitting on two different park benches and stuff when it was warmer um, and doing really kind of creative things. And I was just like, kind of cute. It was, you know, kind of interesting to hear that COVID is here, but it doesn't mean I I can't meet someone if we've given enough time to talking online or whatnot and then deciding to meet in person that was some of the feedback that i've heard
2: technology may have made it easier for people to stay connected but it also changed the way we interact with each other it's interesting how despite COVID and the need to social distance we are still interested in meeting new people and entering new relationships that begs the question why do we want to be in a relationship and how do we pick our partners
3: I think one of the main reasons is that we know that relationships really just make us very happy. Like when you ask people what makes their lives very meaningful, um, one study found that around 89% of people said that their close and intimate relationships are what bring them the most happiness. Um, And from other work we know that people's relationships are also the strongest predictor of um, overall happiness in life. And this is really interesting because it's even above and beyond things like people's satisfaction with their work lives, their finances, friendships, community, or even their own health. Um, And we also know that relationships are really good for physical health so a really cool study that I uh, heard about um, is actually a meta analysis of a bunch of different studies found that Um, If you have strong relationships with high degrees of social support and you really feel integrated within a social network in those relationships, um, that's actually a stronger predictor of your mortality, so your likelihood of dying, uh, compared to more commonly known factors um, such as smoking and drinking. So relationships are very important for our um, well-being, both kind of psychologically and physically as well. Um, But then I also think that relationships are quite adaptive. So yeah, there are a complex kind of range of things that influence our specific choice of a specific partner. So often the the most important thing, whether or not we want to admit this, is physical appearance. Uh, We tend to like people who are more attractive. Um, This is because of something called a halo effect, where we tend to think whether or not it's accurate that attractive people also possess a host of other positive qualities Um, that are relevant to relationships like we think they're going to be smarter, they're happier people, they're friendlier people. Um, But it's also interesting because in our field there's something called the matching hypothesis um, where we tend to be more drawn to people who are physically attractive. We also tend to um, actually pursue people who are about the same level of physical attractiveness as us. Um, In terms of personality, um, on average you wouldn't be surprised to know that most people like others who are honest, understanding and sincere and we dislike people who are dishonest. Um, but at the same time, we also don't like people, uh, who are, you know, perfect overall. We tend to be more attracted to people who have these great qualities, but they're also tempered a little bit by a few endearing flaws, uh, because that makes somebody a bit more relatable and human to us. Um, another important component is similarity. We're attracted to similarity. Um, A lot of people have this perception that in romantic relationships opposites attract so we're attracted to people who are the polar opposite of us um and you know take that complement complementarity kind of approach but research actually largely shows that it's more like birds of a feather flock together so we tend to like people who are more similar to us um we find similarity attractive because it uh, facilitates smoother social interactions obviously if you have similar attitudes to somebody there's Um, a lower chance you're going to have conflict with that person Um, and similar others also have qualities that we like and that we deem to be right or maybe morally superior qualities as well Um, but it's important to note that similarity tends to be more important for things like people's values and their backgrounds Um, and then I guess the last two components that are pretty important with initial attraction is um familiarity or proximity. So we tend to like and end up partnering with people who are, of course, physically more proximal to us, which makes some sense, because in those cases, we have a higher opportunity to actually meet those people. Um, And we also tend to like things more after we've been repeatedly exposed to them and they become more familiar to us. And that's called the mere exposure effect. So if we're more proximal to somebody, we see them more often, um, we're more likely to actually end up liking that kind of person. Um, and then finally, reciprocity is also important too. So we, we tend to partner with and like people who like us in return. And, and we're more drawn to people who already like us as well because you don't wanna necessarily pursue somebody who doesn't really like you in return and have that unrequited love type of situation. So um, overall physical appearance, personality, similarity, familiarity, or proximity and reciprocity are kind of driving forces in terms of who we might um, be initially attracted to. You want to make sure that your commonalities are
4: um, that, that are things that are important to you. I I usually have people make a list, the five must-haves and the five deal-breakers, and only five. So if it's religion's important to you, you want to connect up that. Maybe sports, or taking care of yourself, or spirituality, maybe it's not religion. Maybe it's um, intellectuals. You have to have somebody that has... A, on the same degree pa- path or intellectually, whatever is important. You wanna have somebody that is a great bridge partner. Whatever it is, you gotta figure out what that is for you and then what you don't want. Because once you get in a relationship, you can't change them.
1: Don gave us some great tips on how to pick the right partner, but what happens when deal breakers are overlooked?
2: healthy idealization is normal and it helps us fall in love, but is it true that we can be blinded by love?
3: Yeah, that's a great question too. Um, so in our field, this uh, this kind of notion of healthy idealization that you talked about, um, we talk about that as something called positive illusions or even an enhancement bias. Um, so this is the idea where we tend to view our relationships through rose-colored glasses, and this might be especially true as we're um, initially forming our relationships. So this is when we try to emphasize our partner's positive qualities, and we want to minimize their faults. Um, so you're not, you know, making up positive things about them that don't exist. You're just emphasizing the positive that's already there and kind of disregarding um any negative thing about that person. So let's say that your partner often makes jokes that really aren't that funny, um, but maybe they're very smart and very knowledgeable. Um, So a person with positive illusions about your partner would view intelligence as very important to them, but then say, oh, actually humor isn't that important for me or for relationships. So they're leveraging up the good and they're kind of de-emphasizing the bad. Um, So, you know, the The advantages to having these types of positive illusions about our partners is that they are tied to things like greater relationship satisfaction and stability. Um, It's helpful because it allows us to give our partners the benefit of the doubt. But if you have major illusions about a partner, that can really uh, be harmful because it minimizes big potentially big problems in a relationship. So, for example, uh, it might not be as helpful to have a positive illusion about a partner if they have very heavy drinking, and you're trying to rationalize away that heavy drinking, um, that might not be as helpful for your relationship. Um, So in a way, this is kind of one way that you could be blinded by love.
2: Love and relationships are rewarding. They make life better. But they also come with challenges as we know all too well, Rebecca shed some light on the topic of conflict in relationships, helping us to better understand the predictors of satisfaction and stability.
3: One core theory in the field is called interdependence theory, um, and it says that people's satisfaction and commitment to a partner, or the decision to stay or leave, is determined by sort of this mental calculation that we do in our minds in terms of how many rewards versus costs that you feel in the relationship, which sounds pretty simple. So rewards are any kind of relationship experience that you think um, is desirable. Well, costs on the other hand, are any relationship experience that you deem as undesirable. So these things can be tangible and material, or they can be more intangible. Um, So maybe my partner, I think they're very supportive. I think they're a good parent um, and they're very outdoorsy. So to me, these are all three rewards in my books, uh, for example. Um, But I also know maybe that my partner is always glued to their phone and they, you know, that interferes with deep conversations that they could have with me. So I'm gonna evaluate that in my head as a cost. Um, but nevertheless, I'm still happy with my relationship and with my partner, because the rewards outweigh the costs in that mental calculation that I just sort of did in my head. But it's also quite idiosyncratic, depending on each person. So the rewards that I see in my relationship might not be the same rewards um, or things that you would deem as a reward in your relationship. Same thing with costs. Maybe some of the costs that I see could even be rewards um, in your relationship. It just really depends on how the person evaluates their partner in relationship. Um, but interdependence theory also kind of states that satisfaction is also influenced by what we think that we um, deserve in a relationship or sort of our personal standards. Um, so this is something that's called a comparison level. So if what we are getting from our partner is greater than what our personal standards are and what we think we deserve, we're going to be more happy in that relationship. Um, but if we if what we are getting with our partner is actually below our standards and we think we deserve better than that, then that would make us more unhappy. Something that also predicts commitment is something called a comparison level for alternatives. And that's what we realistically think that we could get in another relationship or um, through being on our own or being single. Um, And it's kind of the, the standard that we use to decide whether or not we should stay or leave that relationship. Um, So if we think that what else is out there is not as good as our partner, um, and we really can't do much better, then we'll be more likely to be committed to our partner in our relationship. But if we think we have a lot of different alternatives out there, we could pursue other partners or life would just be better without our partner, then of course you're going to be less committed to your relationship. Um, Those two Things, satisfaction and stability are highly correlated, but they're not the exact same thing. So it's very possible to be happy in your relationship, but not at all committed. Or it's possible to be really, really committed to your partner, but not at all satisfied, kind of like an empty shell sort of relationship.
1: When I spoke to Carol about struggling relationships, she used the term survival mode to describe them. And I thought it was perfect she discussed the telltale signs of these situations and how they manifest in heterosexual and non-heterosexual relationships. Couples
0: come in when they are in, oftentimes, they're in survival mode. So what I mean by that is there's a lot of mistrust. Um, maybe that was taught in their home. Um, lots of maybe neglect, they experience neglect in their life. Um, maybe trauma various traumas which can include any of those pieces in terms of just neglect or mistrust uh violence um maybe they're they're they've learned how to check out a lot of numbing behaviors right and that can definitely that could include drugs and alcohol but it can just mean that when things don't go my way i just disconnect
1: this survival mode that you talk about would you say that it manifests similarly for both heterosexual and same-sex couples? Um, I think
0: there are different stories. So when I think of same-sex couples, I think of the, the trauma of the, in some instances, of having to figure out who they are and the hurt that comes From the greater, from society, in terms of that, and so sometimes, you know, again, trauma it 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 differs, you know, but it's I think it can be very painful for uh, individuals who've had to fight to maintain who they are and know who they are and show up, and sometimes that can be very different, you know, um, but in some instances, and you know. individuals regardless of, of you know straight couples or couples of different sex the the challenges they can still have those stories as well too but what I've seen in some in same-sex same couples is that they've had a lot of challenge in some instances with family members who were tried to deny them their 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 voice and their place and so it can be very hard to kind of um, find safety in that partner and when you find find safety in that partner um it can, you know it could be very small things again that can disrupt that um because you finally found that person that you can trust and you can connect with so i think you know um i think there are differences and again this is not a blanket statement i think that in some in some instances other couples may have similar uh, you know challenges as well too um but that i think with when we have a history of 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 feeling outside or feeling like we have to prove that can be very difficult again really put one in survival mode um and so it's so important to keep that in mind um as we you know sit with couples and we hear their stories um and and how they've
2: overcome within relationships partners often give and take for one another Rebecca discusses the impact of partner sacrifices and the influence on relationship satisfaction.
3: I find this a really interesting topic because it involves some of my, uh, my own research and some of my own dissertation research, but, um, yeah, speaking more, more broadly. So sacrifice is this process where you're, you're giving up your own self-interest for your partner or something you want to do for your partner. Um, and it's one way that, you know, couples can resolve conflicts of interest in their relationship or these situations where you have a different preference or a desire from your partner. So if I want pizza for dinner and you want sushi, I might sacrifice my desire for pizza and eat sushi because that's what you want to do. Um, or on the more extreme side, which is, um, some of the work I'm uh, doing right now, you might want to move to, you know, the UK for a new job. Well, I want to stay in Canada. I might give up my preference and sacrifice my preference and move with you across the globe to accommodate your career aspirations. Um, And you can also think about sacrifice sort of in two different ways. So there's the willingness to sacrifice, which is people's reports of how willing they would be to put aside their self interest for a partner. Um, And this is something that's in contrast to actual behavioral sacrifice. So whether or not people actually do indeed give up their self-interest or desires for a partner in the moment when push comes to shove. Um, And so we know from meta-analytic findings of um, 82 data sets and over 32,000 participants led by um, one of my colleagues in Amsterdam, Francesca Rigetti, Um, she looked at the links between sacrifice and people's well-being and their relationship satisfaction to see, you know, is sacrifice beneficial for our well-being? Does it detract from it? Um, And they found various, Things depending on the dimension of sacrifice being looked at. So, a person's willingness to sacrifice for their partner was something that was positively linked to um, their own relationship and personal well being, and also their partner's relationship well being. So, if I report that I'm willing to put aside my self interest for a partner, then we're both happier in our relationship. Um, but we know that willingness is not always the same thing as actual behavior and action that we take. Um, so in that meta-analysis, they found that you know when push actually came to shove and we talked about uh, behavioral sacrifice, um, the study found that uh, behavioral sacrifice predicted lower personal well-being and was not linked to either partner's relationship satisfaction. So if I make a sacrifice for you, um, I'm going to feel lower well-being, but the impact on our relationship satisfaction um, seems to at least be null. Overall, I think that these findings suggest that sacrifice is a very... Costly pro social behavior in romantic relationships. And it's interesting because we know from other research that acting pro socially more generally tends to be linked to greater well being. So things like giving money to charity, helping somebody in need, those things are really um, linked to, to greater well being. But sacrifice is kind of this unique type of pro social behavior because it inherently involves subordinating your own needs and interests precisely because of your partner. So your partner is the reason that your goals are being obstructed, which is kind of um, hard to keep in mind. So it might be good for partners to really think about the balance of sacrifice in their relationship. So who is giving, who is receiving, is there a balance there? Um, It doesn't necessarily need to be 50-50, but is is it a balance that both partners are kind of happy with Um, because some people do find it easier to make sacrifices than other people? Um, And then it's also important, I think, to consider other ways to, you know, approach resolving conflicts of interest with a partner that involve a little bit less sacrifice.
2: It's really clear that a lot of work goes into having healthy relationships. People aren't kidding when they say that.
1: Everybody says that communication is key. But exactly how should we be communicating? Is there anything that we can do to ensure that we are having productive conversations, even in the hardest of times? So I think
0: any couple, we need to keep in mind that you want to make sure that you're able to have a conversation, and if you know that you're not in the space of that, you, you know, maybe you're so angry or so upset, it's not the time. Be mindful of having a conversation when you're, you would say, when you're in your thinking brain, right? If you're if you're too dysregulated, um, it's important to be mindful of that. And the best time Mm -hmm. to have a conversation about that is when you're, you know, when you are calm. Like, you know, when I get upset, I can you know, it takes me a while and I I have to step back. I need it. So we need to have those kinds of things spoken about because what can end up happening is if you leave a conversation and you need that to kind of calm down and you haven't told that to your partner, your partner's going to feel like, what's happening, where's he going, where's she going, whatever the case may be, what is happening? And so it can, again, cause the individual to be uh, dysregulated. And so it's important to have those kinds of conversations. Having a conversation when you're calm, when you're thinking brain, when you can regulate yourself is important and recognizing that. um, And just kind of recognizing that when we have conversations, we don't want to, and this is hard, you know, we want to be able to recognize that always, you always do this, or I, you know, all of these kinds of statements get, that can really be like, uh oh, trapping, right? It causes people to feel like uh, really, you know, th- again, defensive, it, it, it pulls the person away from having the conversation, so why am I here? Right. So maybe we can find ways to be mindful of the way we're speaking, because ideally when you're having a conversation, if you could slow it down, you know, and how can we, you know, be in a place where we can be mindful of, Okay, I've seen you do these things. This is what I need from you. So we often practice the I statements, you know, um, in terms of helping the couple to really sort of manage their thoughts. When you did this, it made me feel like that, you know, Mm. Um, and so being being mindful that you want to stick to what's most important if you're having a conversation with someone and you have 50 things that they've done wrong who wants to have a conversation with you right so what's the main thing that you want them to know right and and then how does it relate to how you know the two of you getting better getting stronger Mm -hmm. is there hope is there opportunity like so last time when you did this, I really liked that. but this you know this time I was really confused by this, but again, so we're looking
1: for balance in our conversations. Do you have any tips for resolving conflicts? Let's say you have a couple in this survival mode. Um, what, what would you tell them?
0: First, if there is a conflict, both parties finding a way to sort of take a step away and this is very important for folks to be able to have a conversation when you are ready and you can say you can share things in a safe way the other thing is i think oftentimes this is common we can't change people we can't change people Mm -hmm. i think really underlining we really want to change our partner um, and have them be something else and really thinking about is that what you're trying to do um, and so asking ourselves that or seeing if that's what's getting us stuck I wish they could do this or why can't they do this a lot of the times that's what one is arguing about that you're not <laughs> you're not married to yourself you cannot change your partner it's it's actually you know uh, 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 I remember hearing this beautifully. It's a rejection, right, of the person. So that's really what's kind of happening in this moment. The other thing I think is important when we're having disagreement is just recognizing that you want to take responsibility for yourself. And what I mean by that is sometimes we project things onto people that's more of their stuff that it's kind of my stuff that I have to work out, but I'm blaming my partner for it. Like, you know, maybe I have a lack of trust, and I am I need to figure out within myself that that's my stuff. My partner's been honest. You know, he's been doing what he has to do, or for the most part, is that his stuff or my stuff? Again, conflict is hard, but asking yourself that question is key.
2: So far, we've explored what breaks a relationship and what we can do to help save it, but what happens when a relationship cannot be fixed?
3: In terms of the actual you know, aftermath of what happens when things fall apart, um, some work does suggest that divorce is the second most stressful life event that people would potentially ever experience, which is only second to the death of their partner. Um, so it could be a very stressful experience, of course. Um, it's linked to things like decreases in physical well-being, uh, a loss of a social network, of course, because if you're separating from a partner, you might lose half of the friends uh, that you maybe shared together. Um, but on the flip side of that, one of the more positive um, features that maybe come from a breakup is that people tend to report spending more time with their family and friends, of course, as they're working through um you know, the distress from a breakup. So there's kind of more social network support on that side of the equation. Um, there could also be a loss of joint income, which could be very stressful for uh, individuals as well. Um, but uh, of course, relationship dissolution can also be a good thing if it was a really poor quality relationship to, to begin with. Um, so it's not always necessarily a really Awful distressing thing some people when they're in the moment think that they'll never recover things will never be the same. Um, But we do know from research that people do recover and we actually tend to recover um, more quickly than we think we will, so we often think ahead of time, you know we'd be super distressed if this relationship were to end and we're going to be distressed for the foreseeable future, Um, but we know from some past research that. Um, what actually happens is we tend to recover a bit more quickly than we originally anticipated that we would. So that's kind of um, at least one positive thing that maybe could come out of uh, relationship dissolution. How can we maintain good relationships
1: beyond romantic relationships with anyone that we love? um, What is your advice for that?
0: Well, I think one of the main parts, I think, is, is understanding that we are human beings and that we all make mistakes we come into all of our relationships and we come with our stuff and beautifully asked like whether it's you know romantic relationships or friendships we have our stuff and so it's important even in our friendships that we can just appreciate our friends just because You know and just encourage them i think these are all things that really build real connections and i'm not doing it just because i want to check it off my list but this uh you know i genuinely just love my best friend and i saw something and it made me think of them and i just am calling them up or i'm checking up on them um these are all things that kind of maintain healthy relationships am i checking up on my friends do i know what they're up to do i know what's even if they're busy what's happening in their life right now So I think these are all, you know, things that we can all at times foster in our relationship. Again, depending on where we are, maybe, you know, we are challenged by mental health or something else. And we can't be there all of the time. We don't want to put the pressure on ourselves to do that. But that maintaining healthy relationships, it just it it, it takes work, but it's it's meaningful work, um, in my opinion. Um, And so, you know, I think step by step i think we all get better at relationships no one has the badge of a uh, relationship <laughs> i don't think i think it's we're always growing and shifting and changing and i think it's it's so it's powerful that's what makes it interesting are all of our relationships evolve to some extent
1: a very special thanks to our guests, Carol Sandy, Don Masler, and Rebecca Horn, And of course, thank you for listening.
2: This episode was hosted by myself, Braden, and Rachel. Claire, Zainab, and Angela helped with interviews and episode content. Alex was our audio engineer, and Nor was our executive producer. Until next time.
3: Raw Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science and the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the university. To learn more about the show, visit our website, WattalkPodcast.com, and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at Wattalk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our website when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts, and rate us five stars.